Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space and welcome to episode number 152. It is Climate Week and to mark the importance of this week and the importance of the conversation that is happening around climate change around the world, couldn't have asked for a better guest to come on than Michael Mann. Dr. Mann is a distinguished professor of atmospheric science at Penn State University, and he is one of the most articulate and courageous scientists we have in the fight against climate change. And it's not just because of the knowledge that he has around climate science, but it's also because of his ability to communicate the importance of what we all have come to know and understand about climate change and also to push back and to push back hard against pseudoscience. He has written books. He has testified before Congress. He is active and proactive and effective on social media. And it is a real treat to have him as part of Climate Week. This is obviously something that's really important. And it's something that we've talked about on Explore the Space before. I will certainly invite all of you to go through the archive episode 132 with Jamie Margolin, episode 128 with David Wallace-Wells, episode 125 with Robert Larder, episode 99 with Nick Watts from Lancet Countdown. We've got a really nice archive of content around climate change, all of which is as important as ever. It's as evergreen as ever, and it is all available. These are extraordinary people to learn from. Speaking with Michael Mann was just a treat. We jumped into the power of misinformation. We jumped into the wealthy, insidious, highly motivated, and really destructive interests that push against necessary change in public policy around climate change, around gun violence, around any number of issues. We also talk about how he was forced into the public sphere because of the attacks that he was subjected to because of the work he was doing on climate science and how that journey has helped him to recognize, number one, that quality science is under attack, and number two, we all as scientists and as responsible members and as stewards of this planet need to have the resources and skills to get better at this work together. It was a a total privilege to speak with him, and this is an important episode, and it's an important week. Before we get to the conversation, I want to invite all of you to please come to your favorite platform wherever you download podcasts and please subscribe to Explore the Space. Please leave us a rating and a review as well. For all of those who've been leaving ratings and reviews, I want to say thank you. I really appreciate it. It's a great way to boost the show so that other people can find it. And it's just really appreciated. It's a really kind thing to do. And so if you do have some time, if you haven't left the rating and a review, really appreciate it. It's a really wonderful thing to do. And it really does help the show out. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. I'm very active on social media. You can find me on Twitter at ETS show and on Instagram at explore the space show. The show, as I said, is available on all of your favorite podcast platforms as well. So definitely check them out. We will be engaging on Climate Week all week long and going forward. This is ongoing work. Speaking with Michael Mann was a total privilege. This is a packed episode. You're really going to enjoy it. Without further ado, Michael Mann. Mike, welcome to Explore the Space. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This is a real honor. Thank you. It's good to be with you. I want to capitalize on the fact that having followed you on social media, read your books, watched you 
do all of the work that you're doing, I want to capitalize on the fact that you are able to provide us with a really high level strategic view of where we are with climate change. And I say that recognizing that you've written the books, you have testified before Congress, you are active on social media, you direct the Penn State Earth System Science Center, you've done all of the platforms. So that's kind of where I want to start. How does that sound to you? That sounds good to me. All right. So, <laughs> it actually sounds tiring just listening to you describe. <laughs> I was going to say, your <laughs> tempo is extraordinarily high, and that is appreciated, but I can imagine it's tiring. Let's, <laughs> let's pretend you get to speak to somebody who has just arrived here or who has just awoken to the concept of climate change, and they say to you, Dr. Mann, I'm hearing about this issue called climate change. Can you frame the current state of this issue of climate change for me? Go. <laughs> sure. You know, by uh, burning fossil fuels, uh, oil, natural gas, coal, and, and other activities, we are raising the concentration of so-called greenhouse gases uh, in the atmosphere. These are gases that can absorb some of the outgoing heat energy from the earth. Uh, preventing it from escaping to space and ultimately warming the planet up. And we've now emitted enough of those greenhouse gases through fossil fuel burning and other activities to raise Earth's temperature by more than a degree Celsius, uh, almost two degrees Fahrenheit. And if we continue on the path that we're on, if we continue to uh, burn fossil fuels, uh, business as usual, we don't uh, take any action to mitigate the problem uh, within a matter of decades, we will warmed, uh, have warmed the planet well beyond two degrees Celsius, nearly four degrees Fahrenheit, uh, enough to, to set off some of the, the worst, uh, most dangerous and potentially irreversible climate change impacts. That having been said, we're already seeing dangerous climate change, uh, dangerous climate change impacts. All you have to do is turn on your television or read your newspaper headlines, uh, the unprecedented superstorms and wildfires and heat waves and floods that we are now dealing with, um, the inundation of our coastline from sea level rise, landfalling hurricanes like one we're about to see, that is the impact that climate change is already having. So I will continue in my role here as neophyte just to kind of play this thread out a little bit and I'll respond with, my goodness, that sounds really alarming. One would hope that there has been comprehensive responses that have started. Where are we with our response so that we can mitigate what sounds really horrifying, Dr. Mann? Yeah, so we haven't done nearly enough to, to mitigate this problem. Um, and that's in substantial part because of uh, a misinformation campaign that has been run for decades by fossil fuel interests to sow doubt, to confuse the public and policymakers, to buy off politicians and prevent any policy action from taking place. And because of that, um, we have failed to transition away from fossil fuels at the speed that we need to to avoid uh, increasingly dangerous climate change impacts. Now, the good news is that we are starting to see sort of a plateau in those carbon emissions and maybe uh, this year even a little bit of a decrease um, which is essential. If we are to avoid crossing these dangerous thresholds, we need to ramp those carbon emissions down to zero uh, by the middle of this century. We've got to bring them down by about a factor of two within the next decade or so if we are to uh, avoid warming the planet beyond that two degrees Celsius, nearly four degree Fahrenheit 
mark where we do see uh, ever worse climate change impacts. So we're making a little bit of progress. Uh, the Paris Agreement, the International Paris Agreement, if all the countries of the world make good on their commitments to that agreement, gets us about halfway to the reductions that we need to uh, avert that dangerous two degrees Celsius warming. But we've got a lot more work to do. And finally, again, staying in this role as a neophyte, I've learned very quickly that you are an expert. You know more about this than almost anybody on the planet, if, if not the most, right? So <laughs> recognizing that, let's say, let me ask you this, what would be your wish list? What are the things that you would like to see us do from a community level, from a national level, from a population and a, a civilization level to get to where we need to be to, first of all, stem the tide and then hopefully be able to move in the right direction? Yeah, so uh, we need to transition uh, far more rapidly uh, away from fossil fuels toward renewable energy than we're already doing that. And to accomplish that, uh, individual actions uh, can play a role. You know, we should all do things in our everyday lives that make us healthier, save us money, and make us feel better, and they decrease our personal carbon footprint, whether that's, you know, riding your bicycle more often or taking trans uh, public transportation to work rather than driving your car, um, changing your diet in a way that's uh, healthier and less meat-intensive, for example. Uh, there are all these things, recycling, re reducing our energy usage. Um, there's so many things that we can do in our everyday lives that will make a dent in the problem, but to achieve the sorts of reductions that we need to transition as rapidly away from a fossil fuel economy as we need to do to avert catastrophe, we need policies, governmental policies that will point us in that direction, that will move us uh, in that direction. And we're not going to get that without politicians who are willing to do what's right for us rather than politicians who have been bought out by polluting interests to simply uh, do their bidding and forestall um, policy action on climate change. That means we need to organize, people need to vote, they need to use their voice um, to make sure that we put pressure on our policymakers uh, to make sure that they support the necessary policies for us to actually accomplish this transition away from fossil fuels. So I'm going to thank you for an extraordinary summary. And as I was listening to that, there were things that I heard that I knew. And there were things that I heard that the way you sort of organized the puzzle was really illuminating for me. And so that's really helpful. Thank you. I also reflected as you were talking that a lot of what you were saying, especially around where the barriers have been, moves in a very similar overlay to another subject that we talk about a lot on this podcast, which is the subject of gun violence. Sure and thing. I, I want to probe a little bit and get your insight. There's a topic that I learned about recently, which is the illusory truth effect, where basically uh, something that is... A, a, a misstatement or a misrepresentation is said over right. and over and over enough times <laughs> right. that people begin to believe it. And a right. perfect example of this with gun violence is around the, the not connection of mental health and gun violence. Right. This topic of illusory truth effect, does, when I say that, does that something that connects with you as a climate scientist and someone who has extraordinary expertise on this subject? Uh, absolutely. Um, it connects with me on a number of levels as a human being who's yeah. aware of the, the power of misinformation and, and disinformation, especially in, in modern life where we have, you know, uh, bad actors trying to pollute our public discourse with fake news and uh, so-called uh, alternative facts. As we know in science, you don't have alternative facts. You right, have facts. right, um, right. And so, uh, so this is a problem, uh, you know, throughout our public discourse today, um, and that permeates every issue that we deal with. It's it's a, the, the bad faith that makes it, uh, 
you know, that has represented such an obstacle to uh, accomplishing reform uh, on gun laws, you know, common sense uh, gun law reform uh, to deal with this, um, you know, with, with this other crisis, um, uh, the crisis of, uh, of mass murders and, and gun violence in our country. Um, and whether you're talking about that crisis or the climate crisis, there's a remarkable uh, parallel here, which is in both cases, you are up against uh, very powerful, well-funded, vested effort, uh, vested interests, uh, be it the National Rifle Association in one case or the fossil fuel industry in another case. And in both cases, they have bought out politicians um, and they have uh, worked with uh, you know larger organizations, dark money um, funded organizations, uh, and sort of, uh, the, the right wing, uh, sort of, uh, political machine today to game our politics through gerrymandering, through helping, uh, elect, uh, politicians, uh, who will do their bidding through massive campaign, um, spending, um, to essentially buying, you know, uh, our Congress um, and and stocking it with politicians who are in their hip pocket, be it the NRA or the fossil fuel industry. And because of that, you can have remarkable majorities um, in the public at large who are in favor, favor of reform and still have it possible for politicians to defy uh, the willpower of the people and instead do the bidding of a, a small number of powerful and wealthy interests. And, you know, for example, with gun reform, uh, at one point there was a poll that showed that, you know, 90 percent um, uh, of the public uh, supported uh, assault uh, weapon bans and and other common sense measures. Um, and yet we saw nothing happen. And in both cases, in, in fact, in my book, The uh, the Madhouse Effect, which I co-authored with Tom Tolles, the Washington Post cartoonist, we discuss sort of the parallels in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the what we call the, the, the Sandy phenomenon, which is whether it's uh, Superstorm Sandy, which did massive damage to New York City, the Jersey coast, and, and was made clearly made worse by uh, climate change, or Sandy Hook, this, uh, you know, terrible uh, uh, tragedy uh, with uh, the uh, shoot, you know, uh, mass shooting, uh, killing um, dozens of school children in Connecticut. In either case, whether it's Superstorm Sandy or, or Sandy Hook, you have this event which ought to have galvanized uh, support for action. Um, both of those catastrophes, both of those tragedies, and yet because of the way that our our politics has now been bought out by special interests. Um, despite the overwhelming public support for taking action, politicians, uh, and let's, you know, let, let's be clear here, Republicans, one of the two parties is implicated here. Um, Republicans have found a way to remain in power through the assistance, again, from vested interests, from dark money organizations that funnel money from plutocrats into our politics. They've been able to keep their uh, jobs, even by uh, even as they defy the public will um, to take action. And, and that's the problem. So both of these are symptomatic of a much larger problem today in our politics, which is the way that special interests, vested interests, and, um, and, and, and influence and, and influence from uh, their money has essentially strangled, uh, has paralyzed uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, any, any progress we might uh, seek to make on either 
gun reform or you know uh, uh, attacking climate change I would say that you have just done a really nice job of framing this problem for exactly what I what I asked from that strategic level. So now you and I are both scientists, and we are trained in when we face a problem, we have to begin to craft a solution, and our yeah. solution generally will come from multiple different directions. So when I'm managing a sick patient in the hospital, we're going to take on a lot of different approaches to address multiple issues, but getting at a central tension. Right. Same thing for you. So now I will say that one of the solution sets, and you offer these solutions in the work that you've done online, the work that you've done in your books, and all of that, we're going to have all the relevant links in the show notes and all of these things. This, this is important content. But there's two things that you're doing that I would submit the field of science is just beginning to wake up to. We talk about this a lot on this podcast. Number one is you have made yourself very comfortable speaking with the public in a manner that reaches the public where they sit, where they live, so it's accessible. Right. Number two is recognizing that we have to be political. We cannot be apolitical scientists anymore. That, that, that dogma doesn't hold. We can't right. fulfill our public trust if we don't do that. How did you get those skills? It's not easy, and we're behind. <laughs> How did you get there so that we can all get better? Yeah, you know, I, my good friend Bill Nye, uh, who's, of course, a, a, a great uh, science communicator, one of the very best. That might have really been my favorite with. name drop in the history of this podcast. That was awesome. <laughs> Bill Nye, the science guy, I've been watching him for forever. That was great. Well, yeah, B Bill's become a good friend, and it's amazing what he's been able to accomplish. And, and you know, he's become increasingly political because, you know, he recognizes that the problems we need to solve now are, are fundamentally political in nature. We can't make any further progress without recognizing um, how politics has, has paralyzed uh, us, um, you know, when it comes to solving these problems. And he's got a great line with which I, I agree tremendously, um, you know, science is political, but not partisan. Um, and I think that's an important distinction. Certain problems demand certain types of solutions. Um, and, and that's a scientific way of looking at it. How do we solve this problem? How do we solve the climate problem? How do we solve the gun problem? You can take a scientific approach to that. And it requires certain uh, types of solutions. And if one of the two parties doesn't support that, well, then the problem is political, because the obstacle to actually enacting those policies is our prevailing politics. But it doesn't have to be that way. Um, it, it shouldn't be a partisan matter. You know, uh, our stewardship of this planet shouldn't be a partisan matter. Our support of life, especially those who profess to care so much about life and make it an intrinsic part of their political identity, and yet are uh, uninterested, it seems, in saving lives when it conflicts with their ideology. And of course, I'm talking about um, guns and gun violence and the sort of ideology that, um, you know, that, that somehow it is the right of, uh, uh of everybody to, uh, possess, possess and, and use dangerous, uh, firearms, um, at, at the, you know, uh, even at the expense of the public good, uh, that's, you know, that is ideological. Um, that is, uh, and, and we have to recognize that. How do you, when you have scientists like me who want to get better, who want to be able to communicate and maneuver and be sort of mentally agile enough to 
help move the help move the needle. Yeah. What yeah. is that skill set like? How do you mentor and coach your you know people who are training under you, scientists who approach you, yeah. the public? What are the what are the tools? What are the levers you like to have people leave with when you have a chance to educate around that? Yeah, thanks. It's a great question. And, you know, I, uh, we all come into this uh, from sort of different angles. Uh, you know, uh, Bill is, uh, you know, Bill Nye is a, 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 trained as an entertainer, as a, as a TV personality, but he has a background in engineering, he majored in engineering at Cornell, and he brings that to the table. Uh, so he sort of comes from that direction. Me, um, I was just a mild-mannered scientist um, who published an article back in the late 1990s, uh, the original hockey stick uh, articles that uh, presented this uh, this temperature curve going back a thousand years that demonstrated really how unprecedented modern warming is. And it re really became sort of an iconic um, figure in the climate change debate. And I found myself as a result of that at the center of this very fractious and contentious uh, societal uh, debate over climate change and what to do about it. I found myself at the receiving end of attacks by conservative politicians and fossil fuel industry funded uh, front groups and organizations. Um, and I sort of had to, you know, sort of experience trial by fire, I suppose. Um, you know, I didn't have a choice. <laughs> I found myself in the fray. And to be effective at defending myself, first of all, I realized I had to become uh, as effective as I possibly could at communicating. Uh, my science, our science, but also science in general and its implications. And so it's because of the circumstances I found myself in that I was sort of forced out of uh, off the path that I otherwise would have pursued, which was, you know, I would have been happy just left in the computer lab, crunching <laughs> numbers, doing what I, you know, loved doing. Yeah. But I was forced out of the laboratory. Uh, I was, um, you know, forced into the public sphere. And ultimately, I came to embrace that. And you learn, I think, quite a bit um, simply by doing and, and figuring out what works and what doesn't and, and applying those self-critical skills that you obtain as a scientist to yourself and, and figuring out how you can improve, um, watching other people and watching the approaches they use and figuring out what, what in those approaches works and what might not work, and whether or not you could adapt those approaches to your own personality, because you've got to be comfortable in your skin. And I think first and foremost, you have to be yourself. You have to be authentic. If you're not, you know, your audience, your public will see through that. You've got to be comfortable in your own skin. And that means that certain approaches that might be very effective for some people just won't work for you and vice versa. So it's a, it's sort of a scientific process. It's taking in data and formulating strategies and then evaluating those strategies and figuring out what does and what doesn't. And I think as a scientist, you actually bring, I think we bring a lot of the critical tools to the table. I think there's potential among many scientists, uh, many of us to be far more effective communicators than we might think we have the ability to be. Um, in my case, I was sort of, you know, like I said, forced into the fray. Um, uh, others, you know, other uh, students and, and, and postdocs and younger scientists that I talk to, you know, have a passion about communicating science. They haven't necessarily found themselves under attack the way uh, I did back when I was a, a postdoctoral researcher, but they do have a passion for communicating science. They 
um, do recognize that there is this assault. There is this um, fervor of uh, pseudoscience and anti-science that afflicts so many areas of science today, but particularly those areas like climate change or uh, gun research, where the findings of science conflict with powerful vested interests. I think there's a recognition among uh, younger scientists that science is under assault, uh, and especially in our field of climate science, that it is under assault. And there's a passion among younger scientists to, to try to fight back against that. Um, it's, it's interesting. I think it's sort of generational. Um, in my generation of scientists, uh, you know, when I sort of came of age scientifically, there was a real aversion to um, public engagement, uh, to um, even, uh, you know, speaking, uh, doing anything that even vaguely approaches sort of being political or even that is policy relevant. There was an aversion to that. And I think it has to do with um, the history and culture of science. Uh, and, you know, when we look back, uh, figures like uh, the great Carl Sagan, who sort of broke out of that the traditional role of a scientist and became a public figure and used that um, for social good, in my view, um, he was to some extent a pariah. Uh, within the scientific community for having done that. Uh, he was arguably blackballed from the National Academy of Sciences um, because they didn't think it was appropriate for a scientist um, to be a, a popularizer and to, to simplify things uh, for the public and for their audiences, to do all these things that might seem antithetical to what you know, we do in our everyday lives as, as scientists. Um, so I think there's been a real evolution. I think younger scientists are, are much more uh, interested in participating in, in sort of the broader conversation. I think that has to do to some extent with them having grown up in sort of the new media atmosphere, the world of social media, where there's a, a natural on-ramp to public participation. And I think that's a very good development. I think it serves us well. And it's part of why I'm optimistic that we will win these uh, battles that we're currently fighting against the forces of anti-science in areas like you know, gun violence and climate change. To that, I would add vaccines. I would add any number of things, right? We have yeah. lots of things that we could discuss now, which, which gets to my point, right? You have shown that there is so much connective tissue between all people who pursue any type of science, whether you're a physician or an engineer or a climate scientist. And one of those major pieces is what you described, and I really like that you brought up Carl Sagan in this, is that we abdicated that public connectivity, that public communication for, for many, many decades. So we have to yeah. catch up. Now, I'm not going to be condescending enough to say I can teach all of the physicians who are coming up because <laughs> I wasn't doing it either. So we're going to learn together what we have to do, and this is where I think you can potentially help the rest of us. How do we smooth the ground for them? How do we make sure that they're not having to learn this stuff on their own? They're not making yeah. the same mistakes over and over, that it's part of the career path, that if you're entering the sciences, we're going to coach you up the best that we can, but yeah. you're going to coach us up. And an example I'll give, the Alda Center. I just got to interview the medical yeah. director for the Alda Center, which is created by Alan Alda, and it is designed yep. to teach scientists and Toto how to communicate with the public. So I, right. I feel like this needs to become standard work. Absolutely. And the good news is I think that's really happening now. Okay. Where, you know, often where there's demand, you will eventually see supply. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, there is a demand now among younger scientists for, for that training, for that experience. So and, you are feeling that they're asking for it. They're not just, we're not perceiving that. Oh, they're yeah. saying, okay, good. 
Absolutely. And in, in my field and, and just I, I perceive that to be the case in, in sort of the SciComm field right now. And, and just the fact that you have all these efforts uh, like Alan Alda Center and their efforts, uh, but also AAAS, um, Cyline, they're um, you know, trying to make scientists available to journalists who can talk about um, science relevant stories with them. There are uh, every meeting, the American Geophysical Union meeting, annual meeting I go to at all the annual meetings now, there are literally dozens and dozens of sessions about science communication and the challenges therein and, and how to become a more effective science communicator. Yes. There are workshops um, that are often held uh, bef- at the beginning, you know, the, the day before, the, the days before the, uh, the conference begins, so that people can come out uh, early and take part in a whole day uh, workshop where you'll often have experts working with you to sort of help you hone your messaging. Um, and so there, there are so many different organizations that are now doing this. Uh, there's demand for it. And I think there's, we're seeing a response. And that's, you know, that's all good. For physicians, for scientists, for engineers, for people who aren't in the sciences but have their own interest in it, or people who are just engaged and agree that climate change is an existential civilization threat, what are the things that when they approach you or email you or meet you after a meeting to say, what do you want me to do? What, what, how can I best drive this work? From the perspective of educating others, from from any perspective, when they come to you with that request, and I would imagine you get it a lot, what do you give them? What, What are your asks? So, what, you know, uh, I, I wish I had the bandwidth to help uh, all those folks out, uh, you know, personally, individually. Right. And frankly, I wish I had sort of the, the, the breadth to be able to do that because, frankly, you know, uh, there are different types of messaging strategies, as I said, that are likely to work better for different kinds of people. And in yeah. the same sense, there are sort of – there are depending on your approach and your interests, you know, there may be different mentors who are most likely to be able to, to help you, um, in, 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 you know, in, in improving as a, as a science communicator. So I sort of see my role as somewhat of a public figure and, and someone who's pretty well connected now to the SciComm community. When some, someone comes to me, I'll, I'll try to provide them some resources and answer some of the questions that they have. But I will also try to put them in touch with other organizations. And there are literally dozens of them, you know, whether you're talking about the Union of Concerned Scientists or uh, AAAS or my good friend, uh, uh, Susan Joy Hassel, who is a science communication expert and has a, um, a, uh, a company, basically, uh, called uh, uh, Climate Communication. Um, and she helps, you know, helps uh, climate scientists with their messaging. She participates in, in some of these workshops along with uh, people from the Union of Concerned, science, uh, Concerned Scientists and, and other NGOs. I am on the board of the National Center for Science Education, um, which uh, is focused – originally they were focused on – helping uh, teachers in schools combat uh, efforts by, um, you know, by creationists to try to hijack the teaching of evolution and introducing, you know, intelligent design sort of uh, and, and, and creationism into the classroom curricula. Um, and, uh, and, and NCSE was, was sort of came into being to fight back against that effort and to help educate teachers. And in, you know, over the last uh, decade or so, they realized that exactly the same problem they were dealing with was happening with climate change, uh, climate change uh, deniers trying to get – 
uh, denialism uh, sort of into the curriculum, trying to uh, sort of urge teachers to teach to the supposed controversy. Um, the very same methods, uh, the tactics were being deployed by the forces of anti-science in climate change. And so NCSE ultimately decided to take on that issue. And now I'm delighted to be uh, on the board of that organization because they do such wonderful work. And, uh, uh, and, and one of the things I can do now, because uh, I get uh, teachers uh, in Pennsylvania and elsewhere who will come to me and they'll say they're facing, you know, they've got parents and, and they've got uh, – or even, you know, uh, parent teacher organizations that have been hijacked by climate change deniers and they're coming up against um, this resistance. And I can put them directly in touch, you know, with my colleagues at NCSE who have all of these tools and have the bandwidth, um, frankly, to, to help them. So uh, that's sort of what I see my role as providing some resources, some, you know, immediately. And often, for example, when someone says they're trying, they're, they're coming up against all these climate change denial talking points and what are the answers? Uh, how do I respond to these? And I'll, I'll point them to the website, uh, skeptical science, which is this wonderful website, um, written by, uh, experts, um, and, uh, based on, uh, sort of, uh, they have sort of a team of scientists who advise them and, uh, they, sort of take on all of these contrarian myths and talking points. And they have a wonderful list of, you know, the hundred plus leading climate change denier talking points, along with the responses at the intro, intermediate and advanced level. And you can download the whole thing onto a smartphone. So it's the perfect thing, you know, at Thanksgiving when that uncle, you know, the, <laughs> we all have that uncle, <laughs> Uncle Joe, who, you know, watches uh, certain uh, news networks, certain television um, networks <laughs> <laughs> that uh, start with F and end in uh, with an X ox and, and aren't fixed. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, protecting the innocent or the guilty uh, here yeah. uh, by not naming them. Um, you know, that's so there are all these resources that are out there, and and simply being able to, you know, point people towards them can can make a huge difference. And it's probably the, the the best way for me to be effective with the time that I have in helping these folks. And so that's the luxury of sort of becoming a, a public figure yeah. in the sort of the in the in the climate space is that I'm connected to all these other wonderful individuals and organizations um, and, and I can connect others with them. So there's three words that you said in that extraordinary discussion of how we can move things forward that I want to pick up on. One of them is that you said that you felt delight. You used yeah. the word mentor and you said connect and connection. So here's why I picked up those three words in particular. And I will say links to all of the incredible programs and projects that I'm learning from you right now. We're going to have all of those in the show notes as well. Awesome. Okay. Awesome. So delight. The fact that you've done all this work, you've been subjected to all of this harassment, that you face all these barriers and you can see what is coming, and yet you still feel a sense of delight around the work is incredibly inspiring. So I'm going to say that. Thank you. Number two, mentorship, right? You use the word mentor a couple of times. Yeah. It's not up to you to fix all of this for us, but we need people who are interested and engaged to get the right coaching and to get the right mentorship yep. so that they we can mobilize a, an army. We can mobilize Absolutely. enough people to swing elections, to influence policy, to, to do all of the things that we're going to need to do to change this. And Absolutely. then the tool that's going to do that, right? Connect. We have to be able to recognize that we have an extraordinary opportunity with 21st century technology, right? You and I have never met face-to-face. -face. Hopefully, we'll get nope. to someday. 
I, I direct messaged you on Twitter. You were kind enough to respond. I think we emailed twice. And now yeah. we're on a podcast together that's going to go around the world. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So we can do this stuff. And, and, and that, that description is extraordinarily exciting. Yeah, no, absolutely. There are all these amazing tools and they can be used for good or bad. And yeah. it's our, you know, our, our job to, to try to make sure that they're used for good, that we use the Internet as a teaching tool and to move the needle forward, even as other bad actors are trying to hijack the Internet for their own somewhat nefarious purposes. So you set an extraordinary example with this. And you've also been extremely kind to give your time because I know you are an in incredibly high demand. We will have links to all of these great programs in our show notes. How do people find you? If people want to learn from you, if they want to see you on social media, what are the places that you like to send people to find you? Yeah, so uh, thanks. It's been a real pleasure you know, to talk with you today, and, uh, and I hope to come back and do it again. In terms of finding me, pretty easy to find out there on Twitter. I am Michael E. Mann at Twitter, uh, and I'm very active on Twitter. I see it as a great opportunity to inform the the larger conversation. Uh, I'm on Facebook as Michael Mann Scientist, uh, and I post uh, things there. My website is www.michaelmann.net, and it has links to all my research as well as um, my media interviews and uh, and all sorts of other you know links to the books that we've written, etc. Um, I'm on Instagram now as uh, Michael. Ah, uh, me too. Yes, good because <laughs> uh, you know that's where all the cool kids are. That's right. So, we gotta- you know, you got to go where they are. We got to paddle um, out. Man That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Mann, scientist uh, at Instagram, and yeah, I see you know social media as I see it as a tool for good, and and I see it as something that we can leverage to educate and inform the discourse, but only if we participate and we sort of. Uh, you know, and, and out out participate the uh, the bots and the bad actors who are uh, obviously, as I alluded to before, um, trying to use the those same tools, social media and the internet, to misinform and disinform the public. That's a critical battle that we have to win, and uh, so I'm happy to be on the front lines in that particular battle. I agree with you, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and just subvert a term that's been used by the fossil fuel industry. We, we need to tap into that deep well of extraordinary talent, of motivation, of yep. awareness, and, and elevate it and make people feel like they're empowered and that they can and should speak and have the right tools to do so. This has been I could amazing. not say it better myself, my I friend. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank it, you. Amen. I'm already learning from you. This is what we need. <laughs> so this has been amazing. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for the time. Uh, thank you. It's been my pleasure, and, and I do look forward to coming back again. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.